Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. The original punk rock explosion of the 1970s was two things. First, it was a major reset for rock and roll. Think of it as a, uh, a great musical decluttering. Punk of the 70s wasn't revolutionary. It was reactionary. The music was stripped back, and everyone went back to basics. Very important. Second, there was an attitude shift. One of the central tenets of punk was that if you had the guts to say something, well, then do it. And if no one wanted to help you, well, then do it on your own. Taken together, these two principles resulted in what can be described as the Big Bang for what would later be called alternative music. Punk set off chain reactions of new ideas, new sounds, new attitudes, new fashion, new belief systems, and generally new ways of doing things. The gloves were off, rules were broken, concepts were explored, and unintended consequences followed. We now look back on this as the great post-punk explosion of the late 70s and early 80s, an era that created so many of the basic foundations of the music that we hear today. There was new wave, technopop, and all its subsets, industrial music, goth, and a revival of ska. Those are the major post-punk genres. But there was more. A lot more. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. There's a little R.E.M. from their 1984 album, Reckoning, jangly stuff in the form of Pretty Persuasion, one of the singles from that record. Hello there, I'm Alan Cross, and welcome to the seventh and final installment of our look back at the post-punk era, that fertile period when new sounds and ideas seem to come at us every single day. And in the process, the modern world of alternative music was created. On this episode, we'll round up the other post-punk genres that appeared. And we might as well start with the indie rock scene that birthed R.E.M. Now, indie, as far as we're concerned, means artists who have done everything on their own with no help. That is, independent from one of the big established record labels. Some have even launched their own record labels, which they ran themselves, all in an effort to release music. If we rewind things to the very beginning, as far as our explorations of post-punk goes, we have to give props to the Buzzcocks, a Manchester punk band, who were probably the first to release a self-produced album independently, and that would be the Spiral Scratch album. Others followed, as did small independent labels that specialized in working outside the major label system. That included Rough Trade, 4AD, Beggar's Banquet, Epitaph, SST, and many others. That's part one of the rise of indie. The second is what was once known as college rock. This was the material played on campus radio stations throughout the U.S. and Canada in the late 70s and early 80s. A huge portion of this material was either from unsigned acts or those who released records on independent labels. Now, there was no indie sound 
per se, but you could usually pick it out of a crowd because there were some common attributes and aesthetics. It had some kind of, well, underground vibe and was often experimental, occasionally weird, and definitely not something that you'd hear in most mainstream radio stations. R.E.M., for example, was one of those college rock bands, first finding a home on the campus station at the University of Georgia in Athens. And then they put out music through two independent labels, one called Hiptone and the other called IRS. But early 80s indie rock also included The Cure, The Smiths, XTC, The Replacements, even U2, who recorded for Island Records, which in the early 80s was an independent label. Eventually, a network developed between these campus radio stations. Airplay was tracked, which led to charts. And these charts provided data used by the bands and their labels to determine things like tours. As the decade wore on, some of these acts, U2 and REM come to mind immediately, got bigger and more popular and started getting famous and started selling significant numbers of records. But they still maintained that blush of indiness. But they did start to get mainstream radio airplay. Eventually, the term college rock didn't really cut it anymore. People began referring to these artists as indie groups. And because they sounded different and recorded for smaller independent record labels, they began to be categorized as an alternative to whatever the mainstream was offering at the time. Hence the rise of the term alternative music. In Britain, the A word, alternative, never really caught on. Instead, the word indie was their word for alternative. Like New Wave, alternative and indie were blanket terms for music that didn't easily fit in and was hard to categorize. You knew it when you heard it, as you would have had you discovered R.E.M. for the first time on a cassette someplace in 1983. They were definitely indie. And basically, you left it at that. No further classification was necessary, unless you felt compelled to call them jangle pop or something like that. Joy Division was the archetypical British indie band. They recorded for Factory, an independent label based out of Manchester, when Manchester really wasn't much of a cool place to be for anything. Everyone knew that the real English scene was in London, not up in the north. By the late 70s, Joy Division had developed a strange, spooky, paranoid sound. It was all very minimalist, with singer Ian Curtis out front. When they played live, Ian danced in a weird, strange, jerky way. And fans started showing up in an official uniform, which was a dark three-quarter length raincoat. Joy Division was one of the first post-punk bands to receive attention in Britain. They were too dour to be called New Wave, and the music wasn't thrashy enough to be punk. They were, well, they were different. But at the same time, you knew that they would have never existed had punk not set the table for them. It was with Joy Division that pundits tried to come up with a new name for this post-punk sound. Was it postmodern? Was it new music? With music spelled M-U-S-I-C-K? Well, it was indie. You knew that. But what kind of indie? Was was this goth? No, that wasn't right. Uh, I need a label. Give me a label. Is is this a dark wave? Okay, that might work. Uh, Minor key songs, brooding lyrics, singers with low voices. Okay. But in the end, uh, Joy Division remains uncategorizable. They might have done great things, too, but Ian Curtis committed suicide before much could happen. His death, though, spawned a legend, and Joy Division has become one of the great influential British indie bands of the 20th century and beyond.
the uncategorizable post-punk sounds of Joy Division. But there were other indie groups that did find themselves lumped into specific piles that had labels, even if those labels required some invention. For example, there was Dream Pop. These groups copped ideas from psychedelic music and blended them with interesting textures and atmosphere, often using electronics or studio tricks. The goal was to lose yourself in these waves of sound, a total immersion in music. One of the earliest examples of Dream Pop were Scotland's Cocteau Twins, who arrived on the scene in 1979, signing to the indie label 4AD. By 1983, they developed, uh, well, a, a dreamy, slightly stoned sort of sound with vocalist Elizabeth Fraser basically singing in tongues. And I'm serious about that. Most Cocteau Twins songs featured some kind of made-up, unrecognizable language. This was their biggest single. From 1984, it's Curly Dewdrops Drops. I have no idea what Elizabeth Fraser is going on about there, but it really doesn't matter. The sonic textures of Dream Pop are what's important. There were other groups who wanted to get lost in layers of sound. It was sort of dreamy, but also very, 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 very loud, droning, distorted guitars running through all kinds of effects pedals with languid rhythms and almost barely their vocals low down in the mix. Basically, these bands took what the Cocteau Twins were doing with Dream Pop to its most extreme. This sound became known as shoegaze because the British music press noted that these bands didn't really connect with the audience much while performing. Instead, they just stared at the floor. That is, stared at their shoes. We can give credit to whoever wrote a review of a show by a band called Moose in the old British music magazine Sounds. From there, it spread to the enemy and on to the rest of the music press. To be called a shoegaze band was supposed to be an insult, but after a while, the practitioners of this sound took the word back for themselves. Although the really big shoegaze breakthrough came in 1988 with Ireland's My Bloody Valentine, the march to this sound began much earlier in the decade. Here's the Jesus and Mary chain from 1985 with Just Like Honey. Just Like Honey. It was a really wild time for music, as new generations of musicians raised on the DIY, anything-goes spirit of punk just kept on experimenting. We'll look at more of that in just a second. Back with more of our look at all the other post-punk genres that arrived in the late 1970s and early 80s, after the original punk rock scene gave music a big cleansing of the palate, and a new generation of artists was free to explore new sounds and styles. As the new decade began, which is to say the 1980s, Hip-hop culture was becoming more and more established, and while disco had made dancing very uncool for a certain segment of the population, it was only a matter of time before that changed and people started moving again to the music. One of the more danceable new sounds incorporated elements of new wave, a German style of straight 4-4 music called krautrock, artsy punk from the CBGB scene, funk, rap, Jamaican dub, and even a little disco. This post-punk genre was known by a number of names. Disco punk, techno punk, dance punk, and punk funk. They were all cut from the same cloth. But the reason the sound had so many names was because there were so many subtle variations breaking out at the same time. All of this material had a groove. And whenever there's a groove, the body will follow. Some groups co-opted the heavy four-in-the-floor rhythm of disco. 
added slithering bass lines, and topped it all off with some punkish or new wave-ish instrumentation. The best example might be the Talking Heads. From the very beginning, their music hung on a funky rhythm section. By their third album, their second with producer Brian Eno, they devolved into something so dancey, yet so fresh, that you couldn't help moving to the beat. Yes, they were still considered to be a new wave band first, but you could also hear that something else was at work. This is from 1979. That was one kind of punk funk, or if you prefer, dance punk, at the dawn of the 1980s. At this point, which is to say 1979 and 1980, those labels are interchangeable. There was also a more aggressive version of this approach, led by Johnny Lydon's post-Sex Pistols band, Public Image Limited. It was still very danceable, but there was a real edge to it. It was actually a little scary. It was agitated. It was twitchy. Here's This Is Not A Love Song. There were other acts who were determined to put the funk into punk. Gang of Four was from Leeds. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, big fans of the Gang of Four, came out of Hollywood. And some of what New Order did was pretty funky as well as dancey. Now let's swing all the way over to the other end of the spectrum for a sound that had little in the way of any kind of structure. Another post-punk style was the short-lived no-wave sound that appeared in New York in the late 1970s and very early 80s. To call it avant-garde really doesn't begin to cover it. No-wave practitioners rebelled against all musical conventions. The worst thing, they believed, was to recycle the same old rock cliches over and over and over again. It was all about noise and confrontation and dissonance, all in the name of attempting to create groundbreaking art. The big acts, and big is a relative term here because the sound was self-limited as to how big the scene could actually become, included bands like DNA, Theoretical Girls, Mars, and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. This is called Burning Rubber from 1979. And, oh, look at this. It came out on a label called Migraine. A sample of late 70s, early 80s, No Wave one of the many, many offshoots that appeared in the post-punk era. We need to touch on bands that mined the psychedelic sounds of the late 60s and early 70s for their approach to music in the post-punk world. With new gear and a punk-influenced attitude, they updated what Pink Floyd and the Beatles had done back in the day. We call this neo-psych, which came in many different flavors. And here are two. The first was very British. Echo and the Bunnymen, The Teardrop Explodes, The Soft Boys, Spaceman 3, and even some Susie and the Banshees. The second was American, a scene that became known as the Paisley Underground. These groups dug into California-style psych from the 60s, advancing the sounds first put forward by the Birds and Love, another important California band from back in the day. The Paisley Underground thing started happening on the U.S. West Coast in about 1982, and one of the more popular bands in the scene was a four-piece all-female band that would become extremely successful as a pop band later in the decade. But in the beginning... They were very alt-psych. They were called the Bangles. The 
Yep, the Bengals. Just like the Go-Go's, they were part of the L.A. alternative scene when they first started out, before transitioning into a pure pop band. In a moment, we'll wrap things up with a look at a few other post-punk genres that helped shape the sound of alternative in the 80s and beyond. Like I said at the beginning of this series, music went off in a million different directions at once after the punk of the 1970s offered a reboot of rock and roll. We've covered a lot of the new genres that resulted, but here are a few more. There's Americana, a blending of country, folk, blues, and rock, and then given a slight dusting of alternative pixie dust. Psychobilly was a form of punk that had an old-time rockabilly feel, but was even more gritty. Plus, it had a fascination with horror movies. If you want to get into that music, try the Cramps, who came out of New York City in the late 70s. Then there's New Pop, which is a tough one. Uh, Again, you know it when you see it. Not hear it, but see it. New Pop was an umbrella term for artists who emerged in the early 80s, buoyed by the arrival of MTV and the explosion of music videos. This was pop music that came in a variety of styles. It might have been experimental and adventurous, but the music was tempered with a very slick pop sheen which made it much more palatable to a wider audience. And all the musicians involved had their own unique look. The visuals that came with their music turned them briefly into cultural phenomenons. Think uh, Boy George and Culture Club, ABC and their sharp tuxedos, Orange Juice, a band out of Scotland featuring Edwin Collins, Aztec Camera was another, Heaven 17 was still another. And so was the Human League, who came out of Sheffield. They were definitely new wavy in their approach, but thanks to music videos and the use of synthesizers, they were labeled as a new pop band. Here's a big single from 1983. Finally, you may have noticed that through all these seven episodes on the post-punk music of the late 70s and early 80s, we haven't actually talked about punk rock. That might give someone the impression that it died out before the end of the decade. Well, hardly. It just evolved, too. And the most prevalent form was hardcore, an American invention, mostly from the West Coast, that took the original punk rock formula, made it faster, more aggressive, more harsh, more angry, and more violent. Lots of testosterone here. Hardcore is against anything that the status quo had to offer. It had to be as far from mainstream rock as possible. It is anti-rock star. It is anti-corporate everything. It is intense. But if you know where to look, you can also find humor and good-natured self-deprecation. American hardcore rose during the Reagan years and was all about rebelling against, um, well, everything, including the rebellion of the original punk rockers. But there was also a strong community with fanzines, hardcore-friendly promoters, and collaborative projects like the formation of indie record labels just for hardcore acts. We had bands like Black Flag, The Minutemen, Fear, The Germs, Social Distortion, Suicidal Tendencies, Bad Religion, The Descendants, Husker Du, Circle Jerks. And some of what they did landed in the laps of some of the metal kits, resulting in the birth of thrash metal. So, no hardcore punk? Possibly no Metallica. One of my favorites was San Francisco's Dead Kennedys. They were led by the ultra-political Jello Biafra, who would later take on all sorts of anti-establishment causes, including censorship. He even ran for mayor of San Francisco once, and he finished fourth. Here's something from their 1980 album, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, which came out on the band's own label, which they called Alternative Tentacles. It's Holiday in Cambodia. Cambodia, 
I hope you enjoyed this seven-part look at the explosion of new music that came at the end of the original punk rock era. Like I said, it was a time when it appeared that every day brought a new song, a new artist, a new look, a new sound, a new scene. Some burned very brightly before disappearing quickly. Others helped set the stage for even new mutations in music. And some, like goth and punk and industrial, are still with us today. If you missed any of the shows in this series, they're all available as podcasts. Just go to your favorite podcast supplier, download and go. They're all free. If you want to see what I'm up to on a daily basis, there's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's a very good source for music news and recommendations. Get the free daily newsletter so you don't miss anything. We can connect on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and feel free to drop me an email anytime to alan at alancross.ca. I will get right back to you. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects, to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains. Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it like like late 90s to now is still relevant you know like we broke our our production company fella with uh this music video for uh for dj khaled drake and bieber called pop star so it's 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 been a crazy journey and um there were two kids from brampton ontario that uh went out to you know make art that broke out to the world and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling but through an audio uh medium okay how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. 
I mean, we're talking to the creator, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the the story is the story of the maker, so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. Because I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like. Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like, the best of the best and here and there the stories of the directors working with madonna and working with the stones and that's the beauty about the show it's like we get that access to these filmmakers to these artists i've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business but learn about that journey that creative journey that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on youtube and and before we jump i just want to say please follow us at architects pods uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Cotex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.